We are moving into close to the end of the first major section of Isaiah, going all the way back several weeks. I mentioned that Isaiah can really be divided up into two main sections, chapter 1 to 39, and then chapter 40 to 66. And one easy way to remember that division is there are 39 books in the Old Testament, and there are 27 books in the New Testament, and there are 66 books in, in the, the Bible. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah. So it's, such, it's just a helpful way of remembering where that major break comes in Isaiah. And chapters 35, or excuse me, 36 to 39, the chapters that we're looking at, beginning to look at tonight, these are pivotal chapters in Isaiah. And what they, what they contain are really more historical narrative type material. In fact, much of what you read here in Isaiah 36 to 39 is almost word for word duplicated over in Kings. And so this reads very much like Second Kings because the material is very similar to what you find over there. And this particular section focuses on the reign of King Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a righteous king of Judah, but as we'll see in these chapters, he was by no means perfect. He had his flaws, but overall, the evaluation of the Bible on Hezekiah was that he was a righteous king, and he sought to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And the fundamental question in chapter 36 and 37 is, where will Hezekiah and where will the people of Judah put their trust? And if you've been with us through these early chapters of Isaiah, you've known that that's a recurring theme throughout this first half of Isaiah is who are you going to trust? Are you going to put your trust in political powers, in the strength of armies? Um, King Ahaz was trusted, was tempted to trust in Assyria. So we have, for instance, back in chapter seven of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah goes to King Ahaz and says, ask for a sign, ask for anything in the heavens above and the earth below, anything, anything supernatural at all. And King Ahaz didn't ask for a sign. Basically, he refused to trust. He refused to, to put his confidence in the Lord. And instead, he turned to Assyria. So Ahaz was tempted to put his trust in Assyria. But now Isaiah is coming to King Hezekiah some 35 years later and saying to him, put your trust in God. Don't be like Ahaz, the generation before you, who put their trust in other nations, and those nations turned on them and let them down. Instead, put your trust in God, because he is your ultimate deliverer. And so chapter 36 and 37 deal with a threat from Assyria. Sennacherib is now the king of Assyria, and he is expanding his might, and one of the reasons why Assyria is flexing its muscles at this particular time, this is around 705, 704 BC. And one of the reasons why Assyria is, is seeking to flex its muscles and, and attacking outwardly is because there was some rebellion going on in some of these territories that were under Assyrian control. So you had from the transfer of leadership from Sargon to Sennacherib, these two kings of Assyria, 
you had some of these territories start to drift and start to do their own thing. And Sennacherib, once he establishes his authority and his power, he says, no, no, you're going to stay under my authority. And so he sends his armies out again to gather back all these rogue nations, if you will, and, and make sure that they're in line. And one of those that he's starting to put pressure on and attack is Judah. And so he has pretty much, by the time that these events happen in Isaiah 36, he's pretty much made it all the way through Judah. And all that all that stands left is the capital city, Jerusalem. And Sennacherib and his army are going to surround Jerusalem and threaten it, threaten to destroy it unless they surrender. And that's where the key question comes. Hezekiah, who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust in your wisdom, in the wisdom of your counselors? Are you going to trust in the strength of your army, in your alliances? Or are you going to trust in God? That That's really the core issue. And one of the things that I think is helpful for us, just brief introduction to the way that chapter 36 to 39 are laid out. It's very interesting because chapter 36 and 37 that we're going to be looking at tonight actually in terms of time chronology fall after the events that are described in chapter 38 and 39. So it seems like an odd way of presenting the material, but again, we have to remember that the Bible is not laid out like a history book. That doesn't mean that what the Bible teaches isn't historical. It is. It's historically accurate. It is true. In fact, much of what we see in Isaiah 36 and 37 is corroborated by other ancient witnesses. Even Sennacherib's own journal records himself corroborate much of what we read in Isaiah 36 and 37. So what we read in the Bible is historically accurate. It's just not a modern way of putting together a history book in which you would lay it out in a chronological order. Because Isaiah's purpose is not primarily historical. Isaiah's purpose is primary, primarily theological, right? Primarily theological. He has a lesson that he's teaching to the people of God. And, and so they're not exactly lined up in historical order. But the reason he does this is because of the flow of the book of Isaiah itself. Because chapter 36 and 37 primarily deal with Assyria. And that's been the main opponent throughout the first half of the book. So all of chapter 1 through 35 is pretty much focused on Assyria. And so the the way he lays out 36 to 39 is more literary than it is historical, if that makes sense. So in a literary order, what he's doing is he's, he's grouping together all of Assyria in 1 through 37. And then in 38 and 39, even though these events happen before these, he's putting them here because what takes up 40 through 66 is Babylon. And 38 and 39 have more to do with Babylon, as we'll see the next time that we meet together. So the, the historical order is a little bit reversed, but there's a literary and theological reason why Isaiah has put them in that order. So 36 and 37 have to do with the Assyrian threat, with the the king Sennacherib and his threat on Jerusalem, and how Hezekiah and the people of God will respond to that. So first of all, we see Sennacherib's threat in chapter 36. 
And we see the setting, kind of the first few verses just lay out the, the way that the history of the event unfolded. Verse 1 says, In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. So there you can see he's, he's pushing through Judah and really facing little resistance. He's just marching through, and all these other villages and towns, they have already fallen, and now he's on the last stronghold, which is Jerusalem. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. So basically you have a meeting between the field commander of the Assyrian army and some of the leading officials from Jerusalem. They're going out to speak. What's really interesting is back in verse 2, this specific place that is mentioned there, this aqueduct, this upper pool, that's where Isaiah went to meet King Ahaz back in chapter 7 when he said, ask for a sign. Who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust God or are you going to trust yourself and your wisdom and your alliances? So there seems to be an intentional link there. Ahaz didn't trust God. Hezekiah, what are you going to do? Are you going to trust God? And so these leaders of Jerusalem meet with the, the representative of King Sennacherib, his field commander. And then you see the field commander's speech, which basically he's acting as an ambassador for the king, saying, here are the terms. We've got our army all around your city. Here are the terms of your surrender, basically, is what it is. So the field commander said to them, tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? So there you can see the reference to some of the rebellion that had sprung up throughout the Assyrian empire that King Sennacherib is seeking to squash with his armies. And basically, this is like a taunt. You know, show me your armies. You say your army's strong. You say your counsel, your counselors are strong. Your wisdom is strong. Show them to me. Prove it. Basically, what this king is, this uh, field general is saying. Look, I know you are depending on Egypt. There's that alliance. Remember that alliance that Ahaz had made, and they're going to put their trust in Egypt. I know you're depending on Egypt. That splintered reed of a staff which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. Basically, Sennacherib and his field general are agreeing with God and Isaiah here when they describe Egypt. All along, Isaiah has been saying to the people of Judah, don't trust in Egypt, they're going to let you down. Trust God. Well, in essence, Sennacherib and his field general are basically echoing that. Egypt's going to let you down. You put your hand on it, it's going to pierce you. It's going to be a thorn in your side. But if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? This is very fascinating because 
this shows, this is like the theological core issue of this confrontation. Because Assyria, King Sennacherib, his field general, they're in essence representing their gods. That's how the ancient world thought. That when your army goes out and attacks, you're fighting in the name of your god. And you're representing the strength and the power of your god. And so now he's challenging Hezekiah, not only on the basis of his weak army and his weak counselors and the weak alliance that they have with Egypt, but now he's also challenging their weak faith, their weak religion in Yahweh, in the Lord God of Israel. And that's what it comes down to. This is more than just Sennacherib versus Hezekiah. This is the gods of Assyria versus Yahweh, right? The Lord God of Israel. This is a theological battle. And you can see in this verse some misunderstanding and some confusion on the part of Sennacherib and the Assyrians as to what the true religion of the Israelites was supposed to be. Because he references the fact that Hezekiah tore down the high places and these other altars and and reoriented the people towards centralized worship at the one temple in Jerusalem. Now, if you know Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that's the way it's supposed to be, right? That's the way it's supposed to be. There's not supposed to be any high places. There's not supposed to be any of these other false altars. It is supposed to be a centralized worship at God's house, through God's priesthood, through sacrifices, worshiping one and only one God. But Hezekiah is confused. I mean, uh, Sennacherib, excuse me, is confused. And he thinks Hezekiah has weakened their religion, their faith, has weakened their their gods because he's torn down their altars. But what he doesn't, doesn't realize is that Hezekiah has actually been working for the Lord in tearing down those altars. But he has a misunderstanding of Israel's religion. Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. Again, this is just a taunt, isn't it? It's, you don't even have enough men to put on horses if I were to give them to you. That's basically what he's saying. How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? This is good old-fashioned, ancient Near Eastern, 2,700-year-old trash talking. <laughs> That's basically what this is. Who do you think you are? We're going we're gonna to come in there and we're going to kick you from here till next year, you know? And if I were to give you all the, all the machinery and the weapons and the horses, you wouldn't even know how to ride them. You wouldn't even have enough people to put on them. Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. So now he's invoking Israel's God, saying, God told me to do this. Now, there's a slight irony here. Because, in a way... Assyria and Sennacherib are acting as an instrument of the Lord's chastening hand, aren't they? But Sennacherib thinks, I've got your God on my side. But that's not the right way of understanding it. Yes, the Lord might be using Assyria as his rod of chastening to punish disobedient Judah. But that's not the same thing as saying that God's on Sennacherib's side. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah, these are the representatives from Jerusalem, 
they said to the field commander, please speak to your servants in Aramaic since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. That is, that is a, a weak reply. It's a reply that comes out of fear in, in the sense of we don't want our people to hear the threats that you're making because we don't want them to get scared. So speak to us in Aramaic because we understand it. The people don't. We don't want them to hear these threats that you're making. But the commander replied, was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the people sitting on the wall who like you will have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine? Again, strong trash talking, right? And basically saying, who are you to give me terms? I'm the one with the army surrounding your city. Don't tell me which language I'm supposed to give you the terms in. Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord. When he says the Lord will surely deliver us, this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. You see the quotes there? So those are the words of Hezekiah to the people saying, trust the Lord. The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. And the Assyrian general is saying, don't listen to Hezekiah when he says that. Now he's talking to all the people. Basically revolt against your king. Demand that your king surrender to us. Otherwise, you're going to be destroyed. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern. That language is remarkable because almost everywhere else where you see that language of eating fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drinking water from your own cistern, almost everywhere else where you see that in the prophets, it is a a promise of hope from God to his people saying, this is how I'm going to bless you from the Lord to his people. And basically Sennacherib, the the Syrian is saying, I'm the one who can give you that. I'm the one who can give you peace and, and prosperity, but you've got to bow down to me, put your trust in me until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Have the gods of any nations ever delivered their lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? Now he's presenting his resume, right? No other gods, no other nations have been able to stand up against us. What makes you think that your God can? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? That's referring to the fall of Israel. About 15, 16 years before this, he attacked Damascus. He attacked um, in the north, in Israel, the northern kingdom, and it fell. And he took them captive and scattered them across the Assyrian Empire. And so he's saying, they didn't get rescued. What makes you think you're going to get rescued? Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save their lands from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people remained silent 
and said nothing in reply because the king had commanded, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him what the field commander had said. Just a a symbol of being at their wits end of what are we going to do? A symbol of sorrow, of brokenness. How are we going to respond to this? Chapter 37 we see the Lord's deliverance. So chapter 36 was like one big taunt against Hezekiah and Judah and Jerusalem, but most importantly, their God. And now in chapter 37, the Lord God himself is going to defend his own name and he is going to respond. He's going to deliver them. So here's Hezekiah's response when he hears this word. When King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. So far, so good, right? This is the right response. This is, he didn't send envoys to Egypt saying, come bail us out. He went to to the Lord and he went and he prayed. He sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and the leading priests, all wearing sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. Another good move, right? So he puts on sackcloth, a sign of repentance, a sign of humility. He goes to the temple to seek the Lord and to pray. And then he seeks the Lord's will, right? Through the Lord's man, through Isaiah, the prophet. They told him... This is what Hezekiah says. This day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace, as when children come to the moment of birth and there is no strength to deliver them. It's a very sad picture, isn't it, of stillborn children. It's a very sad, hopeless situation. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the field commander, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God, and that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that still survives. That is the right response. And there are several things in that response that are right. One is it acknowledges the sovereignty of God, doesn't it? We don't know what the Lord will do, but they're humbly putting themselves in the Lord's hand. And they're also acknowledging here, rightfully, the glory, the majesty of the name of God. And that God's name has been marred. God's name has been blasphemed by Sennacherib and his general. And basically, they're praying, God, defend your own name. Defend your name. Defend your honor. And so pray for the remnant that still survives basically those who are left in Jerusalem because the rest of the country has already fallen. When King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, tell your master, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard. Those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. That's faith, right? He's calling them to faith. 
Faith is that which lives not according to sight, but according to the promise of God, right? So what do they see around their walls? They see thousands upon thousands of Assyrian soldiers around their walls. That's what their eyes see. But what are they called to do? They're called to trust God and don't let their eyes deceive them. And Isaiah rightfully takes this as a blasphemy against the name of the Lord. And I love how he refers to this high exalted general that was talking smack. Basically, he calls him an underling, doesn't he? This little underling, this little peon from uh, from Sennacherib. Listen, when he hears a certain report, I will make him want to return to his own country. And there I will have him cut down with the sword. This is the Lord's word through Isaiah. So now Isaiah has basically said to Hezekiah from the Lord through Isaiah, don't be afraid. God will deliver you. Now, in terms of content, Isaiah's speech was very short, wasn't it? Very short, very simple. Don't be afraid. Trust God because he will deliver you. So we've already heard one long babbling speech from Sennacherib's general. Now we're going to hear some more from him. When the field commander heard that the king of Assyria had left Lachish, he withdrew and found the king fighting against Libna. Now Sennacherib received a report that Tirhakah, the king of Cush, was marching out to fight against him. When he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah with this word. Say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says, Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Now, just want to back up one verse. Notice this. Sennacherib is under a little bit of pressure here, isn't he? Because there are some other armies rallying down in Cush, which is down toward Egypt. They're rallying to come up and fight. So what Sennacherib wants to do is he wants to hurry up and wrap this Jerusalem thing up quickly because he knows what's coming. And so he sends his messenger back again, put a little more pressure on them because we need to wrap this thing up. I've got some other things to deal with. So don't trust what your your king says. Don't trust your God. He's not going to deliver you. Surely you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. And will you be delivered? Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my predecessors deliver them? The gods of Gozan, Haran, Hazef, and the people of Eden who were in Tel Asar. Again, some more resume stats there to, uh, to threaten the people of Judah. Where is the king of Hamath or the king of Arpad? Where are the kings of Lair, Sepharvaim, Hana, and Evah? So again, just threatening them, piling on. Hezekiah prays. He prays to the Lord. This is the right response. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. What do you do when you receive discouraging news? Where's the first place you go? Hezekiah gives a good example here. Just take it straight to God. Lay it out before him. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Lord Almighty, the God of Israel enthroned between the cherubim. You've been with us on Sunday nights in Exodus. There's that phrase. 
the, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the cherubim above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, the one who dwells there between the cherubim. You alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. He directly contradicts everything that general of Assyria just said. We conquered everybody. And Hezekiah, in his prayer, it's a prayer of faith. He says, Lord, I know you're really the king over all kingdoms. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words that Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. I love this because this is a, this is a God-centered prayer. If, if I were praying this prayer, I would be praying it, Lord, get me out of here. Lord, deliver me. Lord, help me. And, and he is praying, God, stand up for your own name. Your name is being blasphemed. God, protect your name. You're being ridiculed and blasphemed. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these peoples and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone, fashioned by human hands. He's, he's just taking a knife right through this field general's speech, isn't he? Because this field general is basically saying, look, at have, have any of these other gods been able to save them? Well, no, because they're not gods. Of course, they're not going to save them. So he's seeing through it. He's seeing the reality for what it is. He's not, he's not fooled by the manipulation. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. Not so that my skin will be saved, but so that you will be known as the Lord God. And then Isaiah replies in prophecy from the Lord. This is in response to the prayer of Hezekiah. Hezekiah prayed, and now God heard his prayer, and he is sending Isaiah to deliver a a comforting message. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Stop there. Because you have prayed. Does prayer matter in God's world, in in the, the working out of God's plans and his counsels? Somehow in our minds, we have to reconcile God is sovereign over everything. He knows the end from the beginning, but he and he does what he desires to do. But somehow in a way that is so way beyond our comprehension, all that God has determined to do also includes all of the steps and all of the means and all of the incremental things that go into making that happen. And a part of those steps, those little pieces that fit together are our prayers. And so our prayers flow into, fit into the sovereign will of God for what he has already determined to do. But there's a, there's a causation there, isn't there? Because you've prayed, I've listened to you. This is the word of the Lord has spoken against him. Virgin daughter Zion despises and mocks you. Daughter Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee. I love this. This is, this is, so the field general was trash talking Israel and Jerusalem and their God. This is God through Isaiah trash talking them. I love it. 
Daughter Zion despises and mocks you. Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee. Who is it that you have ridiculed and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel. Remember what Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6? The the glory of the Lord when the smoke filled the temple and he heard the, the seraphim saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's why you see this phrase throughout all of Isaiah, the Holy One of Israel. He, he saw that vision in the temple. By your messengers, you have ridiculed the Lord. And you have said, with my many chariots, I have ascended the heights of the mountains, the utmost heights of Lebanon. I have cut down its tallest cedars, the choicest of its junipers. I have reached its remotest heights, the finest of its forests. Basically kind of putting back into Assyria's mouth its own pride, its own arrogance. I have dug wells in foreign lands and drunk the water there. With the soles of my feet, I have dried up all the streams of Egypt. You can see the hyperbole there too, right? There's just Assyria kind of boasting in its arrogance and God giving, kind of giving it back to them. Have you not heard? Long ago, I ordained it. In days of old, I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. Their people, drained of power, are dismayed and put to shame. They are like plants in the field, like tender green shoots, like grass sprouting on the roof, scorched before it grows up. But I know where you are and when you come and go and how you rage against me. So this is God now saying back to the Assyrians, I know all about you. I know where you've been. I know you. I know what you've been doing. Because you rage against me and because your insolence has reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will make you return by the way you came. That's, the, that's an image of slavery, isn't it? Of, of captivation, putting the hook in the nose or, or the bit in the mouth of an animal to direct it. Saying, just the way you came, I'm going to send you back packing. This will be the sign for you, Hezekiah. This year you will eat what grows by itself, and the second year what springs from that. But in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. The idea here is there are going to be a little bit of lean times coming, but then flourishing that God's going to bring. Once more, a remnant of the kingdom of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Who's going to do it? Not Egypt. Not your army. Not how wise you are. God is going to do this. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. So not even, not even an arrow, not one stone is going to fall. Not one life is going to be lost from this siege of the Assyrian army. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Basically what God is saying there is, I am concerned about my glory and my word. 
my glory, my name, and I have given my word to David. 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. I have given my word to him, so for the sake of my word to David, for the sake of David, this will not happen. I will defend this city. And God fulfills it. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. Just stop and think about that for a moment. God says not one arrow is going to be shot. They're going to run back the way that they came. Yeah, if you woke up in the morning and you never heard a sound all night and a great portion of your army is now dead, yeah, I would go running away too. This is the angel of the Lord. Now, it's hard to say with dogmatic certainty, but a lot of times when you see this specific usage in the Old Testament of the angel of the Lord, many times that is like a theophany, a, a, a Christophany, if you will, of, of God himself coming in vengeance, in justice. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. And he returned to Nineveh and stayed there. So he went all the way back to his capital city. So he didn't even go on. He didn't even say, okay, we're going to move around Jerusalem now and just keep on going around. He retreated and went back. Why? He didn't have an army left. He had to go back home. One day while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nisroch, his sons, Adremelech and Sharezer killed him with the sword, and they escaped the land of Ararat, and Eshardon, his son, succeeded him as king. Reminds me of Daniel. The Lord causes kings to rise. The Lord causes kings to fall. And this Sennacherib was so arrogant, so prideful. What God is there that's going to be able to stop me from conquering you? Well, he found out, didn't he? the name of the Lord God of Israel, Yahweh. And not only did he lose that battle and run back home, but he also lost his kingdom and his life. You can't go against the Lord. You can't go against the Lord. The Lord will defend his name. The Lord will defend his word. The Lord will defend his people. So when troubles of life hit you, now I don't expect there to be 185,000 Assyrians surrounding your house tonight or this week, but you're going to face something. You're going to face something that is difficult, that is challenging. Where are you going to go? Spread it out before the Lord, just like Hezekiah did, and pray to him. And when you pray, pray for the honor of God. Pray for the glory of God. Pray his words, his promises back to him and see what God will do. Trust him. But it's all about trust, isn't it? What are you going to trust? Are you going to put your trust in yourself, in doctors, in your riches, in your talents, in technology? What are you going to trust? And so the Lord is the one who is sovereign over all. He is all-powerful, and he will glorify himself.